I just got a very wonderful shipment of goodies from the folks at Reese's. And let me tell you something. These people remain the absolute worldwide leaders in bringing together chocolate and peanut butter. Of course, we know that peanut butter cups remain transcendent. But have you tried the Reese's sticks? Their wafers with peanut butter in between each wafer, all coated in chocolate? I mean, the combination of sweet chocolate and salty peanut butter just brings people joy, and the folks at Reese's do it better than anyone. So shop Reese's Peanut Butter Cups now at a store near you, found wherever candy is sold. Please note this episode contains discussion of body image, weight loss, and eating disorders. So Aubrey, important thing to just sort of like clarify right here at the top. Yes. Which is that uh, in this conversation, I'm going to be calling you fat. Yeah, please do. <laughs> I hope that you do. Yes. Um, and, and I just want listeners who aren't familiar with your work to know that uh, that, is, uh, that is the term you prefer. That is my preferred term. Uh, we have attached a lot of weird baggage to the term fat. We use it to mean unlovable and unintelligent and undesirable and unattractive and a whole lot of other uns. And at the same time, that is the size and shape of my body, right? So I use that in a truly neutral way, the same way that I talk about uh, the length of my hair or my height, right? Like, it's just a fact about how I look. This is The Sporkful. It's not for foodies, it's for eaters. I'm Dan Pashman. Each week on our show, we obsess about food to learn more about people. Aubrey Gordon is a fat activist and best-selling author who writes about anti-fat bias and the physical and emotional realities of being a fat person in the world. She first wrote about these topics anonymously on her blog, Your Fat Friend. She expanded on them when she went public with her identity in 2020 with the release of her first book. Aubrey's also the co-host of the podcast Maintenance Phase, which explores the history of popular health and wellness trends and at times debunks the science behind them. I wanted to talk with Aubrey in part to hear her story and in part because this is our first episode of the new year and the most common resolution Americans make each year is to lose weight. Aubrey says for a long time, that was her annual New Year's resolution too. What is this time of year like for you? This is a time of year when I pay every streaming service for no ads. <laughs> <laughs> because I am a 40-year-old fat woman, and that means that I will get this like endless onslaught of new year, new you kind of stuff. Get your beach body ready, right? Like all of that kind of stuff really starts to crop up. Right, right. And I feel like there's also this message that we get in January that is sort of like, you've been naughty, yeah, and now it's time to atone. Yeah. It's a fascinating thing that we think about eating as like some kind of moral activity. There are other things that we need to do every day, like breathing and going to the bathroom, and we don't attach that kind of energy to those things, right? right? This idea that if you are denying yourself, you are closer to something more virtuous or more pious or more holy is something that has seeped into our culture uh, past the point of people who are like actively religiously observant. I mean, I think both of my parents are not particularly religious people, neither am I, uh, and they are still people who will describe things as like sinful, <laughs> right? Will describe food as sinful or I'm being good or I'm being bad or what have you, right? Which is just a very clear one-to-one -one on, again, that sort of connection between food and morality. So that's this time of year for you now. Tell me about your relationship with New Year's resolutions in the past. 
I used to make them. I used to think they were like a really good and important thing to do, like a moment of measurable growth in your life, right? And the top New Year's resolutions were always, I'm going to lose that last 20 pounds. I'm going to, this is the year. This is the year I finally get fit. As a fat person, it was never the last 20 pounds, right? Quote unquote, in order to appear thin to the people around me, for me, that mark would be, I don't know, 200 plus pounds, right? Which is a thing that takes years and isn't linear. And based on data, we know doesn't work for an overwhelming majority of people who attempt it. So it just felt like an exercise in sort of self-flagellation for being the size I have always been. As she says, Aubrey's always been fat. In her first book, she writes about her experience growing up. When I was in, I think maybe fourth grade, I went to a pediatrician who gave me a whole talk about how I know pizza tastes really good, but you can't have pizza anymore and you can't have this anymore and you can't have that anymore. And I was like, my mom's on Weight Watchers. We don't have pizza at our house. I don't know who she's talking to, but it's like, not me. Arby says when she was a kid, doctors weren't the only people who made assumptions about why she was fat or had suggestions about what she should do differently. You become aware very young as a fat kid that people really are like paying attention to what you eat and they will tell you things about what you're eating and what you should be eating and all of that kind of stuff. And what it ends up doing really, at least in my case, was that it ended up encouraging me to like hide food and to eat in private away from other people because no matter what I ate, whether it was a food that other people thought of as virtuous or not, I would get a comment, right? Like, hey, good job with the salad. Or I would get, maybe you should get a side salad instead of fries. I think people really, really think they're doing you a favor and they really, really think they're helping without realizing that they're doing this like incredibly humiliating and sort of patronizing condescending thing that is much more reserved for fat people. And it's a way of sort of flagging, FYI, I'm still paying attention to how fat you are. When Aubrey was 11, her mom signed her up for Weight Watchers. I just remember going down into this. It was like a downstairs, like community center, AA kind of setting, right? Um, Sitting in a circle and folding chairs, confessing to your sins. They would weigh you in and they would keep a log of your weight and they would loudly congratulate you so that the whole line of people waiting to get weighed in could hear how well you were doing if you lost weight. And if you didn't lose weight, they would say nothing and you would just move along. So it was just like everybody knew at every minute how everybody else was doing. But the thing that stayed with me the most was the way that people would talk about how their whole lives would change if they were 20 or 30 or 50 pounds lighter. People would uh, say things like they'd finally get that promotion if they just could lose this weight. Or the problems with their marriage would fix themselves if they were just more what they thought was more physically attractive to their partner, right? Um, Most of the people in that room were my age now. They were in like their 40s. And I think there was something about... It felt like being ushered into adulthood as a woman to be like, this is what your life is going to be like. (laughs) You're going to bemoan your body and you're going to hate it. That's part of your job. And you're going to tell other people that you think everything will be different if you're thin. 
Going to Weight Watchers also made Aubrey hyper-aware of the nutritional information and everything she ate. That wasn't by accident. That was part of the point of the program. So I was there for Weight Watchers in the era of flex points. There have been many eras of Weight Watchers. So I had like a little tag board slider where you would sort of account for the calories, fat, and fiber in a food, and that would tell you how many points there were. So, uh, you know, in middle school, I was calculating how many points are in a scrambled egg or in a handful of Cheetos or what have you. And I think um, for any listeners who have uh, eating disorders, you know that once that calculus is in there, <laughs> in your brain, once it starts kicking out those numbers, it's really hard to shut it off. Um, so over time, I think that uh, helped lay a foundation for later disordered eating uh, in my life. No question. No question. How do you feel in retrospect about your mom taking you to Weight Watchers when you were a kid? Uh, I mean, I wish she hadn't, but more than that, I wish that that wasn't like the primary expectation of parents of fat kids in the eighties and nineties. Right. Like I just wish that that wasn't like the measure of a good parent at that time. And it really, really was. If you had a fat kid, you needed to be seen taking that kid to fat camp or to weight watchers or to, you know, workout classes or whatever. Right. Like that was seen as like a core sort of duty of parents. And I think still is to some degree. At times, all the attention on her body and what she was putting into her mouth made it hard for Aubrey to enjoy eating. But she does have some happy food memories. I grew up in Portland, Oregon. I still live in Portland, Oregon. I love it here. And I had then, as I have now, blueberry bushes in the yard. And I remember running around in the summer in the backyard, having an incredible time. And you just stop for a snack and it was blueberries off of the blueberry bush. And that was one of the most delicious <laughs> things I can ever remember tasting. Like, it was just like, yeah, second to none. In her 20s and early 30s, Aubrey worked as a community organizer. But around 2016, a single conversation with a friend would lead her to shift her whole career to the work she does today. I um, had a good friend uh, from college, and she and I had been talking about body image-related stuff and body size-related stuff. And I remember trying to talk to her about some places where she and I had really, really different experiences. We were both people who had uh, features of anorexia. And I think the more we tried to relate about it, the more we saw how different our experiences were. That, you know, someone my size who seeks treatment for a restrictive eating disorder is more likely to get told, you don't need treatment, it looks like you haven't missed a meal in a while, than we are to get medical care, right, for a medical issue. And she and I just sort of kept missing each other. She was a thin person, I was a fat person, and we just... Um, it wasn't a contentious conversation, but we just weren't meeting. You were talking past each other. Yeah, exactly. That's exactly right. Um, so I decided to write her a letter uh, about how I felt about it. And I sent it to a friend of mine to just make sure I wasn't being a jerk. <laughs> like, <laughs> can you give this letter a read and make sure I'm not being the world's biggest jerk to a friend that I love and value? Uh, and he said, I, I think it seems fine on that front, and maybe you should think about posting that somewhere where other people could read it. I asked Aubrey to read some of the letter, which she titled, A Request from Your Fat Friend, What I Need When We Talk About Bodies. When I talk about fat, I'm not talking about feelings or self-esteem or body image issues. 
I'm talking about the way individuals and institutions treat me and people who look like me. I need you to acknowledge that you and I have different experiences because I am fat. When you say that you shouldn't have eaten that lunch or dessert, or when you announce your New Year's resolution to lose 5, 10, 25 pounds, you are saying that you don't want your body to end up like mine. I need you to know that when you talk disparagingly about your own body and then you say, but not you, you're beautiful, your compliments are impossible to believe. That if you disapprove of yourself, vivisect your own body, and then compliment me, I will remember how you talk about both of us. If you think of your own fat body as repulsive, I will believe you are also repulsed by mine. I need you to know that even with good intentions, you can still do harm. I need less sympathy and more solidarity. Less pity, more anger. Fewer condolences, more action. I need you to stop comforting me. I need an ally. Did you get a response from her? Yeah, we had like a lovely sort of series of conversations after that and stayed close for a number of years after that. But did she eventually acknowledge the things that you were hoping she would acknowledge? Yes and no. I mean, I think, uh, I don't know that, there's like a level of understanding that you hope for as someone who's building a relationship with someone across some line of difference, right? Whether that's uh, women building relationships with men and really wanting to be understood on a deeper level than is likely or whatever. I was having that kind of experience, and I think I was expecting more of her than I've seen from most people who aren't fat. So I think some of it was that my expectations were uh, I hadn't checked them against my own experience. Uh, I'll say that. But I think what I got is fundamentally what I needed, which is just like, we're still friends. We're still good. We're going to keep talking about this. But at the core of that is, I love you and you're my friend. Aubrey also took her other friend's suggestion and shared it online under one condition. I posted it anonymously on Medium under the name Your Fat Friend because of something that happens to fat people on the internet all the time. Fat people with 50 or 100 followers on the regular get doxxed. Aubrey was preparing for the worst. She wanted to protect herself. What she wasn't prepared for was the scale of the response her post received. It got, I think, like 40,000 hits in the first week, which just seemed to indicate that there was like more of an appetite for more conversations. Aubrey spent the next three years writing anonymously on media. She wrote about what going to the gym is like for her as a fat person, the challenges of shopping for plus-size clothing, and the ways fat people are and aren't depicted in popular media. We don't get fat people in even like stories of people working at restaurants or the post office or whatever, right? Like fat people aren't even like extras in a lot of things, right? We are just fully absented from the conversation, which is wild if you go outside where there are fat people. Right? Like, if you go to the grocery store, you will see more fat people than in a huge extra scene. Right. Well, that brings me to one of my all-time favorite headlines. I, I forget where it appeared, but early on in the days of reality TV, when it was first taking off, I remember seeing a headline that said, if this is reality, where are all the fat people? Yes. Oh, my God. How do I not know this headline? Yes, absolutely. The answer was, they're all on The Biggest Loser, an extreme right. makeover weight loss edition. Well, well yeah. 
Aubrey's essays got a lot of views, which led to a social media follower where she used the same pseudonym. In 2019, she started penning a column for Self Magazine, still maintaining her anonymity. Writing all those columns led Aubrey to revisit moments of her life as a fat person that she had forgotten or blocked out or just not fully understood at the time. The more she wrote, the more she came to see herself in a different light. There's a thing that happens when you're a fat person and you talk about having an experience that fat people tend to have and thin people don't, right? For example, at one point I was reseated on a plane because someone uh, had like a little bit of a fit about having to sit next to me. It felt hugely publicly humiliating, right? The entire plane is seated. The only thing that's happening is the one person sitting next to me loudly talking about how they don't want to sit next to me. So you just sort of feel everybody's eyes on you and you become acutely aware that you're like theater and not a person anymore. People are watching you like they watch TV, but that nobody feels like, hey, maybe this is something to intervene in, (laughs) or maybe this is someone who could use a little comfort or something, right? And When I got home and told many of my friends and family about it, their first questions were, were you doing something? What were you doing that made him do that? And I think over time, you sort of internalize that. You sort of go, oh, I must have imagined it. Or, oh, I must have done something. Or, oh, you know. And I think the more that I wrote about things, the more I realized how hurt I had been by them, how many instances there were. It was... It was a really hard process to actually, instead of sort of brushing off that hurt, to actually go, no, there's something real there. What's actually there? Coming up, Aubrey drops the anonymity and takes your fat friend public. Then later, she'll share some of her 20 myths about fat people, and we'll get her take on Ozempic. Stick around. Time to cook up some advertisements. Whether you're a family vacation traveler, a business tripper, or a long weekend adventurer, Choice Hotels has a stay for any you. They've got over 7,000 locations and 22 brands, including Comfort Hotels, Radisson Hotels, and Cambria Hotels, and you will get the best value for your money when you book with Choice Hotels. I especially love those Cambria Hotels. They have locally inspired hotel bars with all kinds of specialty cocktails, downtown locations right in the center of all the action. Radisson Hotels have flexible workspaces. That way, if you're a business traveler, you'll be able to get all your work done. On-site restaurants, fantastic. And then at Comfort Hotels, you'll enjoy free hot breakfast with fresh waffles and great pools for the whole family and spacious rooms. I mean, if you have kids, you understand the importance of the pool. If you stay at a hotel with a pool... Almost nothing else matters. Fortunately, all the Choice Hotels take care of all the other stuff too, but I mean, a pool is a great start. Whatever kind of vacation you're going on, whatever kind of travel you're doing, Choice Hotels has a stay for any you. Book direct at choicehotels.com, where travels come true. The weather's warming up. Have you nailed down your summer travel plans yet? I can tell you, we're working on ours and things are booking up, which is why you should be thinking about Norwegian Cruise Line. They have been raising the standards of cruising for more than 55 years. Let me tell you, when you cruise with NCL, you get award-winning specialty restaurants, immersive entertainment, and the most thrilling experiences at sea. Now, look, one of the great things about cruises in general is that you can visit and explore all kinds of different destinations, all with the ease of unpacking your bag just once. But Norwegian Cruise Line 
They take cruising to another level and they take food to another level. With no set dining and entertainment times and no formal dress codes, you have the flexibility to design your ideal vacation. They have an incredible variety of truly authentic and fresh dining and bar experiences complemented by exceptional service. Listen to this. There are up to eight complimentary and nine specialty dining options per ship and up to 23 bar and lounge options. Come see why NCL's guest first philosophy means exceptional service and unforgettable memories. Book your next vacation at ncl.com. I enjoy a nice glass of wine, but I don't pretend to be an expert in wine. I usually just want a wine that's high quality, delicious, and not too expensive. And to me, that's Bogle Family Vineyards. And here's the thing about Bogle. This is a third-generation family-owned winery from California that makes exceptional wines for about 10 bucks a bottle. Bogle wines consistently earn best buy designations and high ratings from wine enthusiasts. And let me tell you something. The folks at Wine Enthusiast, they drink a lot of wine. They drink a lot of fancy, expensive wine. And yet they still keep giving great ratings to Bogle. And Bogle Vineyards has so many different kinds of wine. Whatever your mood, whatever you're eating, there's a wine for you. they got this great Pinot Grigio that's crisp and fruity, goes well with spicy foods, with fish. They have a classic Chardonnay that's balanced, amazing, with a pork tenderloin or butter chicken. I like to take that Chardonnay and do what Jacques Pepin taught me, a couple of ice cubes in your glass of Bogle. If Jacques Pepin says it's okay, then it's okay. And there's the Bogle Pinot Noir, refined and elegant with bright fruit and about as food-friendly as a red wine can be. You're not going to believe it's only $10. Neither will your friends if you tell them. So pick up a few bottles of Bogle wherever you buy your favorite wines. Please drink responsibly. Are you ready for warmer weather? I know I am. But is your wardrobe ready? I just stocked up on spring and summer clothing at Quince. And let me tell you something. I'm feeling great about everything I got. I got a couple of short sleeve button-down shirts, polo shirt, some shorts. Everything feels great. It's super high quality. And I can't believe how much stuff I got at a reasonable price. Quince has all the seasonal must-haves, like 100% European linen shirts from $30, performance polos, and versatile flow-knit activewear. The best part? All Quince items are priced 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing practices, along with premium fabrics and finishes. Whatever you need for the spring and summer, Quince has your back. Upgrade your wardrobe. Go to quince.com slash sporkful for free shipping on your order and 365-day returns. That's Q-U-I-N-C-E dot com slash sporkful to get free shipping and 365-day returns. Quince.com slash sporkful. Welcome back to The Sporkful. I'm Dan Pashman. And as we kick off the new year, I got to tell you, we have so much big news coming your way in the next few weeks. From a new podcast we're about to launch to a special series that's a sequel to Mission Impossible and a U.S. tour of live podcast tapings, the biggest tour we've ever done. And there's more, so much more I can't even list it all right now. So if you want to make sure you don't miss any of this goodness, please connect with our show. The best ways to do that are to follow me on Instagram at The Sporkful and subscribe to our newsletter at sporkful.com slash newsletter. Do either or both of those things right now while you're listening and you won't miss any of the excitement we have in store for you. Thanks. Okay, back to Aubrey Gordon. Aubrey spent several years writing under a pseudonym. Eventually, her columns earned her a book deal. On the eve of its publication, she revealed her name online for the first time. Her decision was mostly a practical one. It's very hard to do a book tour with a bag over your head. I considered the Shia LaBeouf, I'm not famous anymore bag, um, but did not go with it. There was another factor. Aubrey originally stayed anonymous to avoid being doxxed, but by that point, despite her efforts, it had happened. 
Her full name, home address, even her social security number were all posted online. Aubrey says it was terrifying. She started spending more time at home and staying indoors. Compared to that, going public on her own terms? It felt scary, but not anywhere near as scary as involuntarily going public. (laughs) Do you know what I mean? Like, uh, it just felt like I could just sort of set down this big, cumbersome thing I'd been carrying around. In 2020, Aubrey published her first book, entitled What We Don't Talk About When We Talk About Fat. In it, she takes a different approach than most books about fatness and body image. It felt to me like almost any time I talked about my experience as a fat person, the response that I would get from people who weren't fat was something like, I totally get that. I'm having a really bad body image day too. I'd be like, that's not how I feel about my body. This is all determined by how other people feel about my body, right? And I think what I wanted to do is write a book about um, implicit and explicit bias, uh, not a book about like how to love yourself, which was kind of the only avenue at that point that fat people, and particularly fat women, were being given in media. In her book, Aubrey writes a lot about the idea of body positivity, arguing that it's not a helpful tool for fighting anti-fatness. Listen, we totally should accept all bodies. <laughs> that's a that's a good thing to do. And uh, to me, it's not even, if you're thinking about a staircase, it's not even like the first step. It's like stepping over the threshold <laughs> to get to the staircase. Is like, yeah, no, you shouldn't actively say terrible things about other people's bodies to them. That seems like we should all be able to agree to that. Right? <laughs> like, <laughs> So, A, it felt like a low bar, but B, for some folks, it led to big, deep, enlightening moments. But for many folks, it was just sort of changing what you said about your body, not necessarily changing how you treated it or how you felt about it. And it certainly, certainly didn't challenge uh, people's biases toward people who were fatter than them, right? I'm curious to hear your take on this, because this is something I'm sort of like, you know, thinking through is like, Mm. uh, on one hand, one of the problems with the idea of body positivity as it's sort of commonly understood today is that it makes no distinction between feeling fat and being fat. Absolutely. On the other hand, we're all subject to the same societal pressures. Mm-hmm. You know, we're all seeing the same media. Mm. And so even people who might not fit your definition of fat mm. are still still have to deal with some of the same pressures. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think, listen, what you're talking about is uh, the pressures of like having a body in the world, right? Like, I don't know that there's a person who has a body in the U.S. who's like, no, nah, man, I'm pretty good. I got this on lock. I feel great about how I look. Nothing to change. Done and done. <laughs> right? Like, I just don't. If that person exists, I don't know that person, right? Um but I think it's a place where we, this is where um, conversations about like structural barriers and uh, other people's behavior and all of that kind of needs its own space, right? And the places that we get into trouble are when people do exactly what you're talking about, which is conflating the idea of like feeling like you're not thin enough with the lived experience of being a fat person, right? That like, Many, many, many people feel like they're not thin enough. Not everybody can get kicked off of an airplane when they have a paid ticket, right? Um, many, many, many people feel like they're not thin enough, but only people my size make about $20,000 less a year for the same jobs. 
we've just got to be able to have conversations about body image and acknowledge that those are conversations about how we feel about ourselves. And we've also got to be able to have a separate set of conversations where we talk about how other people treat our bodies and how institutions treat our bodies and regard our bodies, right? And it helps everyone get the support that they need when we're just honest about which of those conversations is happening at what point. Last year, Aubrey published her second book, entitled You Just Need to Lose Weight and 19 Other Myths About Fat People. It became a New York Times bestseller. The book identifies four categories of myths. The first covers the idea that being fat is a choice. Yeah, that's sort of our main way of thinking about fat people. It's just like, just put in a little more effort. Take the stairs. Yeah, take the stairs. God damn. (laughs) Take the stairs is like the bane of my existence. (laughs) Like somebody walking up two flights of stairs is the difference between me being a size 26 and a size six. Like, nice try, team. (laughs) Um, But yeah, there is this idea that fat people just aren't putting in enough effort. And actually, what we know from studies about attempting to lose weight, particularly through diet and exercise, is that most people are able to lose weight for six to 12 months. Then over the course of the next Mm, one to three years, that weight comes back. And then by five years after that, most people weigh more than when they started. That's not uh, an accident. That's like an observable trend among people. And it has absolutely nothing to do with willpower and everything to do with biological signals designed to keep you alive. As Aubrey explains, studies show that when we lose weight through calorie restriction, a bunch of changes occur in the brain and body, which are our body's attempt to return us to our previous higher weight. Because from an evolutionary perspective, throughout most of human history, if you started consuming fewer calories and losing weight, it was a bad sign. It probably meant you were having trouble getting enough food. So your body's reaction to weight loss is rooted in self-preservation. When you start eating less and losing weight, it sets off evolutionary alarm bells. Some hormones spike while others fall, making you feel more hungry and less full even after you eat. Your metabolism slows down, retaining fat to conserve energy. And perhaps most important, all these changes persist long after you stop dieting. So even if you lose a lot of weight, keeping it off means overriding your body's hardwired biological drive to survive for years, if not for the rest of your life. There's still a lot researchers don't understand or agree on about exactly why it's so hard to lose weight and why it's even harder to keep weight off. What researchers do know is that for women like Aubrey, who are classified as obese, there's less than a 1% chance that she'll ever reach a quote-unquote healthy weight, healthy as defined by government standards. Knowing that leads me to a bunch of different questions other than how do I get thin, right? It frees me up to be able to think about like, okay, well, I don't have to worry about that. What are my actual health issues? And how do I actually treat those health issues rather than just trying to lose weight all the time? What are my actual issues in my relationships and how do I fix those instead of thinking I just need to be thin enough for people to accept me, right? Like it frees you up to actually live your life more fully. Another idea Aubrey challenges in her book is the whole notion that there is an obesity epidemic. She says it is true that between the 1960s and 80s, Americans started gaining weight. There are a number of factors, and researchers have not agreed on one clear culprit. The industrialization of our food system made food less healthy and also cheaper, which led to bigger portions. So even Americans who avoided junk food started eating more of everything. 
This increase in consumption was accompanied by a decrease in physical activity. We spent more time in cars and sitting at desks. But I think the main thing to know is that the point at which we start getting reporting about a quote-unquote obesity epidemic is after 1999. And the reason that that matters is that in 1999, we changed the thresholds and lowered them for who could be considered medically quote-unquote overweight or medically quote-unquote obese, right? The lead on CNN, this is one of my favorite, not a headline, <laughs> but a lead, right. <laughs> uh, was... Uh, Millions of Americans woke up Wednesday overweight and they hadn't gained a pound, right? So <laughs> uh, the thresholds had been changed. The ways that doctors were um, interpreting who was fat and who was thin had changed. But when you see reporting even still to this day on the quote-unquote obesity epidemic, you see a huge spike in 1999 to 2000 that makes you think a bunch of people got super fat. One of the other myths that you take on uh, in your book is the idea that being fat is unhealthy. Yeah. This is one, I, Aubrey, I can imagine some listeners having a bit of a record scratch moment. And, and I can imagine people saying, yes, certainly we should not be prejudiced against fat people. We should not be shaming fat people. Aubrey, you make so many valid points about your experience and the, how these attitudes need to change. Yeah. And certainly there's a lot of junk science out there with regard to diet culture and fad diets. But if, if you set all that aside, isn't it still true on a basic level that if you are fat, you are more likely to develop certain negative health outcomes? And therefore, shouldn't we try to help people not develop those outcomes? Uh, I think the trick here comes with how we help quote unquote, the idea that we seem to have in our heads is that every health effect that is a result of being fat is just a direct result of fat cells in your body. And actually what we know is that anti-fat bias in doctor's offices leads fat people to delay care not by months, but by years. And that doctors will send fat patients away and say, come back when you've lost weight and then we'll talk about this health condition. Or famously, uh, there was a woman named Rebecca Hiles uh, who spent eight years uh, looking for medical support because she was constantly short of breath. And the doctors told her that she needed to lose weight. And that was just because she wasn't active enough and she just needed to get thin and that would take care of it. And when she found a clinician who would listen to her, she found out that she had lung cancer that had gone untreated all of that time, right? There's a study that shows that fat people's blood pressure spikes when people say anti-fat things to us, right? Like, so that's one of the health outcomes that folks associate with being in a fat body. They assume that you just are too fat, therefore your blood pressure goes up, therefore you have a heart attack or a stroke, and therefore you die of those reasons, right? Not that Actually, your blood pressure is really not helped <laughs> by lots and lots of people telling you what to eat and how to look and why you did things wrong and why you aren't lovable or desirable and, you know, all of that sort of stuff. So I think it's less that there's no connection between body weight and health and more that that connection is used to justify absolutely garbage behavior and that actually that may have as big or bigger an effect on fat people's health. 
So like, if you care about fat people's health, the thing to do isn't to tell them what to eat. The thing to do isn't to pity them. The thing to do isn't to offer them to be like a gym buddy or whatever. The thing to do is work on anti-fat bias in yourself and the people around you. The thing to do is to advocate for equitable health care. The thing to do is join the National Association for Advancing Fat Acceptances campaign uh, to end weight-based discrimination. It's still totally legal to fire someone from a job just because they're fat in 48 states. That's bananas, right? Like the idea that all of that wouldn't also impact your health is some real head in the sand thinking. In the years since Aubrey's last book came out, there's been a huge new topic in the world of weight loss and fat acceptance that I wanted to talk about with her. We're going to the it girl of the year, Ozempic. Yeah. <laughs> That's right. Yes. Yeah. So there's a few things that I'm curious to to discuss. I, I noticed new ads on the commuter train that I take into New York City. Mm. I don't know that it was specifically for Ozempic, but it was for some kind of weight loss drug. Sure. And I don't remember exactly what the slogan of the ad was, but it was something to the effect of, it's not a shortcut, it's healthcare. Yeah. I thought there was a lot to unpack in yes, that ad. Yes, there sure is. <laughs> it's operating on multiple levels. Like First, they're saying it's not your fault if you're fat. Mm-hmm. And, and, and if you haven't been able to lose weight, it's not because you're lazy. Mm. But, but there are medical issues and you need healthcare and here's some healthcare. Yeah. I do think that the ads for Ozempic and other GLP-1 agonists are like the most interesting thing. That's the the medical term for the class of drugs that work in that way. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that's like Ozempic, Wegovi, Manjaro, Rebelsis, all that whole sort of world. The thing that I have been surprised by most is sort of a lot of the naivety in reporting, right? Many, many folks do not lose dramatic amounts of weight on Ozempic and Wegovi and all of those. The numbers are considerably more moderated than the high watermarks that we hear, all of that kind of stuff. But there's also been a lot of very wishful thinking sort of think pieces from thin people being like, oh, we now all get it. Being fat isn't your fault, so we're all going to treat fat people better. Uh, and those think pieces are not coming from fat people because I, speaking only for myself, as a fat person, what I have experienced much more is full on strangers telling me I should consider going on Ozempic, right? So like it's been, a, the dial has turned up considerably on anti-fat bias in my own personal life. And that happens anytime there's a big diet craze, anytime there's a big quote unquote weight loss breakthrough, um, folks think, oh, we can stop thinking about this thing because there aren't going to be fat people anymore. Is is that how all this sounds to you? Yes, absolutely. That there won't be, you know, like, like the, 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 that's the underlying message of, of the good news of Ozempic, that, that there won't be fat people anymore? Oh, I don't even think it's the underlying. I think, like, there have been many headlines that are things like, and cover stories that are things like the end of the obesity epidemic, question mark, <laughs> right? Where they're just like, we won't have fat people anymore. And as a fat person, it doesn't feel great to hear the whole country having a party because they think they're not going to have to look at you anymore. And again, I would say that I hear from somebody about it 
just in my own personal life, like maybe once a week, somebody says something about like, oh, have you considered it? Have you been in a... Uh, and I think all of those people genuinely think they're doing me a favor and it feels horrible because what that person is saying is I'm looking at you. I don't want to have to look at you anymore. I think you're going to drop dead immediately <laughs> and we got to fix you. Here's how we're going to fix you. How would you describe your relationship with food today? Oh, uh, I would say that I on my best days approach food with a great deal of joy and curiosity. Like, I don't know if there's anything I like quite so much as trying a flavor combination that my mind can't wrap itself around. The Jenny's Everything Bagel ice cream. Did I buy it? Yes, I did. Yeah, that one. Yeah. What did you think of it? It tasted a lot like a bagel and a lot like <laughs> ice cream. And my brain never reconciled those two things. I, yeah, I, I love Jenny's. I, like, Amazing. You know, I ordered it. And I love their, I, I think she has cream cheese ice cream in a different, mm -hmm. uh, uh, there's another flavor, maybe the skillet cinnamon roll has some cream cheese frosting situation mm -hmm. in it. Um, I don't love everything bagels. Yeah, <laughs> well, so that, that would be a <laughs> <laughs> But I still couldn't resist trying it. And, and at the beginning, I was like, wow, that's actually good. I might like this more than an everything bagel. And it started to get a little too weird for me, but I was glad yeah. that I tried it. And, you know, I'll try anything Jenny cooks up. Same. And I will say on good days, I would say I am like really enthusiastic and excited always to try things I haven't tried and all of that sort of stuff. And on bad days, uh, uh, I uh, to this day struggle with like eating regular meals and that kind of thing. Like it it continues to be a challenge, but it's a it's a real weird mismatch between my feelings about myself when I eat and uh, how much I love and I'm excited about trying new foods, <laughs> you know? Yeah. What's something you ate recently that you really enjoyed? Oh, man. Uh, okay. Okay. <laughs> uh, <laughs> this is not something that I ate recently and really enjoyed, but it's a thing that I'm like looking forward to immensely. I'm about to go to uh, Los Angeles for a little bit. There are certain things that I look forward to every time. Mexican fruit cocktail. Every time. It's going to be delicious. Going to Odium, Timothy Hollingsworth restaurant. It's always going to be delicious. There are a number of places. But the thing that I've been most looking forward to this time is the number 19 at Langer's Delicatessen. Oh. What's the number 19? Pastrami, light rye, sauerkraut, American cheese for some reason, Russian dressing. So it's it's like a uh, it's like a sort of a It's like a Reuben with American cheese for some yeah, reason. Yeah, it's, it's like a bastardized Reuben. And it is beyond. It's so phenomenal. I can't even tell you. I'm very excited about that. And next time I'm in LA, I'm going to get after try that because I love American cheese. I'm a huge oh, defender of American cheese. I, like whenever, sometimes I'm on public radio and if I mention that I like American cheese, you know, the switchboards light up. There's <laughs> all these public radio people can't handle it. It's not even cheese. Shut up. It's cheese and it's amazing. It's the most perfect melting cheese on the planet. It may be our country's greatest contribution to world culture. <laughs> And we should all be enjoying American cheese. I love it. How about you? What's your thing that you ate recently and enjoyed? Ooh, what did I eat recently and enjoy? Um, so I uh, have had a tradition with my kids that every holiday season we make Buckeyes, you know, like, like the peanut, yes! peanut butter ball covered in chocolate. Um, the recipe that I use, I like quadruple the amount of chocolate it calls for because I like mm. a nice thick chocolatey shell. And I think that you want, when you dip the peanut butter ball into the chocolate, the recipes will typically say, 
hold it over the pot and let most of the chocolate fall off so you get like a thin light coating. But I say no. I want a lot of chocolate. And then you quickly place it down on the wax paper on the baking sheet. And what happens when you put it in the fridge to chill it is that you get like a little chocolate skirt. Yeah. And that's extra crunchy. It's crunchier than the chocolate around the top of the peanut butter ball. And then you sprinkle a little fancy salt on top and you get crunch and salty and creamy. Oh, man. Sorry, Albert, you got me excited now. Buckeyes are delicious, and it <laughs> genuinely they are on my list to make this week for a friend of mine. Uh, awesome. So it's getting me very excited and motivated to actually All right, good, this. good. Yeah, yeah, well, yeah, yeah. here's to Buckeyes. Yeah, That's Aubrey Gordon. Her podcast with journalist Michael Hobbs is Maintenance Phase, and her latest book is You Just Need to Lose Weight and 19 Other Myths About Fat People. If you want to learn more about anti-fat bias, Aubrey's fat reading list is a great resource. You can find it on her website, yourfatfriend.com. Next week on the show, have you noticed that there are just a lot more different types of products in the grocery store than there were a few years ago? From nut butters to yogurts to seltzers, it's dizzy, right? It turns out a lot of the driving force is data gathered from your frequent shopper card, cameras in supermarkets tracking your movements, and more. We'll explore the trip to a supermarket next week. While you wait for that one, check out the reheat we dropped at the end of last year featuring two of the nerdiest food scientists slash cookbook authors out there, Nick Sharma and Harold McGee. That's up now. This show is produced by senior producer Emma Morgenstern and producers Andres O'Hara and Grace Rubin. Editing by Amelia Chapelo. Our engineer is Jared O'Connell. Music help from Black Label Music. The Sporkful is a production of Stitcher Studios. Our executive producers are Colin Anderson and Nora Ritchie. Until next time, I'm Dan Pashman. And I'm Sadia in Ashland, Oregon, reminding you to eat more, eat better, and eat more better. Mm-hmm.